You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. How is everybody doing today? What a great time of worship this morning, wasn't it? And let's just give thanks to the Lord. Father, thank you. We love you, God. Thank you for being so faithful and good to show yourself with us today. Today, I want to talk to you about, um, about your house. In fact, I took a camera to your house, so uh, let's take a look. Just kidding. Um, I was like, what? Yeah. When I was a youth pastor, I used to do this, uh, um, this, this, uh, this bit where I called it, called it the snoop. And I was like, um, this like agent who would invade the kids' rooms while they were at school. And I would videotape their bedroom without their uh, knowledge, uh, the parents' knowledge, obviously. I would call ahead, hey, can I videotape your kids' room? And can I dig around in their stuff? Yeah. I was called the Snoop, and uh, what I would do is I would uh, go to their room, and I would dig around in their room and videotape their room as is, mess, dirty, and, and I would stick the announcements on cardboard signs in their room, like in their closet and in their drawers and stuff. So I'd go through their drawers and find the announcements and, and give it the announcements like that. It was, a, it, was a, it was a revealing look into the lives of our teenagers. And um, would it be uh, disastrous if it was at your house? Or would it be cool? See, a lot of the agreements with the parents were is only is that we were only allowed to videotape the room, the bedroom. We would go straight to the door. We'd videotape the door. Of course, we'd show it on that Wednesday night. The kids would be like, that's my house. <laughs> and then they knew, they knew what was coming, and it was going to be all about making fun of them and their life. So uh, we kid because we care. That was our motto back then. And uh, it was a lot of fun. It's called the Snoop. But if I were to go to your house and I take a look at your house, you know, our houses tell us a lot about ourselves, don't they? Uh, our homes reflect a lot of our personality. They reflect our style. Uh, our furniture says what kind of person we are. The colors uh, kind of tell the tell others what kind of um, life we like to have or what things we like. It's usefulness. And I got to tell you, I love my home. And uh, my wife has done a great job at making our house a wonderful place to come home to. And uh, did you know that God has a house? Did you know God has a house? He does. Today I want to talk about the house of God. Now, we've been on this series called Kings. And as you know, we've been covering the first three kings of, uh, of Israel's history. Saul, who has served 40 years, only served God Two years. He was impeached by God after two years and served the other 38 running from God. Actually, he put to death priests and uh, tried to destroy the ark and all this stuff. It was disastrous. God had anointed a new young man who 15 years later became king. His name was David, and he became one of the greatest kings uh, that Israel ever had, even though his life was marked with struggles. His life still today is a life of integrity and honor and a life of justice and compassion and loyalty. And that he was the one that God promised would bring forth the family of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. David also had it in his heart to build a temple for God. Because up to this point, the Ark of Covenant, which we're going to talk about in a minute, had been basically in storage at a house and in a mobile tent. And David decided to bring it back out to the center of the consciousness of Israel. He established a new capital called Jerusalem, and he brought this ark to Jerusalem, and he wanted to build a great temple. But God said, no, instead of building me a house, I'm going to build a house through you, and I'm going to establish your kingdom. And he says, your son however, is going to do this. So basically, David prepared, he planned, and he gathered materials for this great temple. God instructed David to commission his son Solomon, uh, who's also known as Jedidiah, uh, to build this temple. And after David's death, Solomon, as king, begins the work on what is to become one of the great wonders of the ancient world. In fact, if you were to look up the seven ancient wonders of the world, Solomon's temple is in the top seven. Now, let's talk a little bit about it. First Kings chapter five, verse four, is we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Now, 
It says, but now the Lord my God has given me, this is Solomon talking, has given me rest on every side. That means there's peace in the land and there's no adversary or disaster. He says, times are good. He says, and I intend therefore to build a temple for the name of the Lord my God. I want you to notice it's for the name of the Lord, not for the Lord. This is important because this temple was not built for the Lord. It's built for the name, for the declaration of the name of the Lord. He says, as the Lord told my father David when he said, your son whom I will put on the throne in your place will build a temple for my name. Now, King Solomon, he built a great and massive. In fact, King Solomon's days are the glory days. They are the great glory days of Israel. He built many houses, palaces, gardens, parks, irrigation projects, public works. But the most famous of all of his achievements is the temple of God, known as Solomon's temple. And after he built it, that temple was established and used for over 400 years as the center of worship for Israel. Now, I want you to realize this, that he picked the place called Mount Moriah. He picked a mount called Moriah, and it's the place where David saw God. And it's also the place years and years ago that Abraham was to offer his son to the Lord, and and God intervened. It was that exact same place, Mount Moriah. It was the highest point in Jerusalem, in that city region there. And he picked that to be the place to build the temple. The temple was believed to be uh, 20 stories high from the ground, 135 feet long, 30 feet wide, and the actual building itself where you walk in was over six stories high on the inside. It took seven years of work and thousands of workers. And and the windows, it was so detailed that the windows were supposed to be angled in such a way that they were narrow on the inside and wide on the outside because it symbolized that the light that came from within that temple was to emanate to the world. The details were right down to the very threads that were used to build the curtains. The interior was completely overlaid in gold. It was a wonder of the world. What is the big deal about this temple? That is the question we're going to look at today because the temple is not a, a, a story and the temple is not an event. The temple was a way of life. So today we're going to look at the temple of God as a way of life for them and why was it so important to them? So to get the background of of why this was such a big deal, by the way, this is surprising one of the most significant things in the Bible to know about, yet the least understood of most believers. So the temple is important to us today, as just as it was to them, but we're going to explain it in a way of why it's important to you, okay? So here's the flyover. To understand this, we need to fly over. The Bible is one story that moves from creation to new creation. In Genesis 1, 1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And as you continue reading Genesis 1 and 2, you see that God created the world where man and woman would walk and dwell with God. In fact, they would walk in the garden in the cool of the day and God dwelled and walked with Adam and Eve. And the Bible ends with a new creation where God again dwells among his people. In fact, Revelation ends it like this. And Revelation 21, 3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. You see, the story of the Bible is from creation to new creation, from dwelling with God to us falling from God to us dwelling with God. Everything in between is the story of God reaching out to us, to man, to woman. God's intention from the start has always been to dwell with us. For us to know him, not for him to know us, because he already knows everything about you. He knows the hairs on your head, the freckles on your back. 
God knows everything about you, but he wants you to know him. So God created a a man and a woman. He created mankind, not because he needed fellowship, because God doesn't need you or me. He doesn't need to be loved. He doesn't need worship. He doesn't need uh, people because he's alone. He didn't create the angels because he was sad and everybody talked to. He is completely self-sustaining. He is full of joy at all times. He is all that is good and pure and right. And he is complete in himself, but he created man out of the sheer pleasure of the relationship. God created man to dwell with him. But like Adam, we have all have a problem called sin and we've all fallen from God. And that's a problem because God is holy. And because of our sin, a God who is perfect and holy has chosen not to dwell with us anymore because lest he consume us, he would no longer dwell with our pre- in our presence. So we were cast from his presence lest he destroy us all. For he is holy and good and just. But through Moses, we see that God sets up a new system, a way for God to dwell with man again, if only temporarily. And that system that he set up is the system that became the temple. This system we encounter is first found in the book of Exodus. Now, I want you to follow with me because we're going to kind of unpack why the temple is important for you and me today. We often think that Exodus is all about the story of people leaving Egypt, and that's, that's what we get out of it. But really, the story of Exodus is a story of leaving loneliness and walking into a fellowship of dwelling with God again. The entire second half of Exodus is all about God setting up a new system where he could dwell with man again. Exodus is a mini picture of the entire story of man. Think about it. It's the people who are enslaved who cry out to God. God hears and rescues with signs and wonders. They are set free. God gives his word and establishes a system of redemption, a covenant of redemption, and then leads them into a promised land. That's the story of all of creation. The system has three phases that we find out in Exodus called the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and then the temple. The tent of meeting was the place where God dwelled with Moses, where they would share and talk and where God would relay to Moses the word of God, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. That's the place where Moses met with God, the tent of of meeting. As God established a system and he instructed Moses to set up a second phase, which is called the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a tent on wheels. It was as they wandered the wilderness, they would have this temple where they would fellowship and meet God. And God had very specific instructions for that temple and that tabernacle rather uh, that we're going to talk about. And then as they moved into their own land, Through Solomon, they went from this tabernacle to a permanent structure called the temple. Now, I want to talk a little bit about this structure. In Exodus, God gives intentional, detailed instruction for this event. It's this. In Exodus 25, 8, it says, Then have them make a sanctuary, that's a sacred place, and I will dwell among them, and I will make this tabernacle, this large tent, In all its furnishings, he says, make it exactly like the pattern I show you. So what they give, uh, what they're given are exact details. Let's see if I can get these to balance up here. Is they were given exact details in the camp on how they were to live and function. And they were, let me get these in order. They were explicit on how it was supposed to look. It was detailed as to the size, the dimensions, the colors, the shapes, what they were to be made out of, what items were to be silver, what items were to be bronze, what items were to be solid gold, what items were to be red, what items were to be metal, what items were to be out of precious stones, everything from the garments that they wore, exact details were given. And what you see is in this scenario, they have the camp, uh, which later became a city, 
But the camp was the place where the people set up and traveled the wilderness. Those 41 years, those 40 years they were in the wilderness with Moses. They were a tabernacle on the move, on wheels. And the camp was mobile. And every time they set up camp, everything had to be exactly the same. And there was this place called the courtyard. When you walked in, there was this courtyard. And in the courtyard, there was to be something called a brazen altar. And this brazen altar was a altar that was bronze. And it was a place where animal sacrifices were done. And immediately after they were to sacrifice these animals, they went over to this, this wash basin, this lavern, which is basically the place where they would as priests clean themselves and clean their garments. And and they would make sure that they were clean from the blood of this brazen altar. This was all in the court area. And then once they sacrificed an animal and cleansed themselves in the lavern, they then entered into the tent. And the first room of the tent was known as the holy place. And this holy place had three specific things in there. There was a menorah, which is uh, a candle with seven arms on it. And each one of them represented the light of God shining every day of our life. And then there was a table of showbread, which is a, a table of bread that was to be eaten as a way of fellowship and relationship with the truth and love of God. And then after they went and lit the lights of the menorah, after they ate of the bread of the showbread, and they would then go to this altar called the incense tabernacle, the incense altar, and they would burn incense and fill the room with the sweet aroma and worship the Lord. And then they had another room. It was a perfect square. It was called the most holy place or the holy of holies. And in the holy of a holy, holies, they would house the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant had been built years earlier, and it was a specific Ark that was meant to hold the very words of God that were given from God to Moses. And inside of the Ark kept the word of the Lord. And it was the most holy place. And it would, that was the place where the fire of God would, would lead them and guide them during the day, uh, during the night, and that a pillar of smoke would lead them during the day. And this temple on wheels was their place of worship. Now, why was it needed? Why was this, why was this tabernacle in the camp so important? Well, here's a few reasons why the tabernacle was important to them. Is Number one is it was the place where people could find God. If you were in the camp, They knew that no matter where they were in the camp, where they could find God, where they could find the Lord, where they could find his presence, where they could find his power, where they could find his people. They knew that the tabernacle was the place anyone could go. In fact, when they moved into the city, it was called the city of light, the city that was set upon a hill that was to be the light of of the world because of the temple, because it was the place that the whole world could find where God was. They could see it and know where to go. Second thing, why God's house, why this temple tabernacle was so important is that it's the place where the Lord would dwell with his people. Those who entered into that courtyard, those that entered into the tabernacle, those that went through the court into the temple knew that this was the place where they would sense and feel the presence of God. They knew that if they went here, it wasn't just God, are you out there? But it was God, you're here. You're right. And I feel you. It was a place where the Lord would hang out with them, would dwell with them. Those that entered knew that God was with them. Exodus 25, 22 says, there above the cover between the two cherubim, talking about the Holy of Holies, there is to be the Ark of the Covenant law. And I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. He says, if you build this, I'm going to meet you there. God said he will meet them at the Ark. 
and I will speak to you there. It's the third reason why the ark or why the temple, why the tabernacle, why this tent was so important is that it's the place where man found peace with God. You see, for generations, man struggled in their walk and their knowledge to know God. And our sinful nature passed down to us from Adam was an ongoing battle and struggle to connect with the creator of the universe. But at that tabernacle, as they entered the court, there on that brazen altar, there were lambs and cattle and ox that were sacrificed on the altar for our covering. They were sacrificed in our place. It's known as atonement. The word atonement means to cover our sins. There was one family responsible for this, and it was a family called the Levites. They were the generations of the son of Jacob, whose name was Levi. And these Levites served as priests, and they offered sacrifices every day. Exodus twenty nine thirty nine says, This is what you're to offer on the altar regular each day. Two lambs a year old. Offer one in the morning and the other at twilight. For the generations to come, this offering is to be made regularly at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord. He says, there I will meet you and I will speak to you. He says, if you will follow and sacrifice these lambs on that brazen altar to a day, that 704 lambs a year, if you will sacrifice on that altar the blood of an innocent lamb, I will meet you there. You see, when you walk in to this tabernacle, when you were to walk into this temple court, when you were to walk in blood, the first thing you experience when you walk in, death. It's the first thing. It's the smell of blood and death. This, uh, this death was a bloody entrance, and they were instructed to put blood on themselves They were instructed to put blood on their clothes. They were instructed to put blood on the doors, on the altar, on the building. Everything was sanctified with the blood. And he says, there at the sacrifice of the Lord, I will meet you. He says, there where the lamb is sacrificed, that's the way in. So the first thing they saw when they came in was a brazen altar with a sacrificed lamb. That was the way in. Another reason why the uh, covering the, the uh, atonement was so important is it was also once a year uh, where they did a special sacrifice called on the day of Yom Kippur, which is basically the day of atonement. It was once a year the high priest would enter the most holy place, this is Exodus 30. Lamb's blood was then placed on the four corners of the incense altar. So serious was this that people often died. Basically once a year they would offer sacrifices And then they would enter the Holy of Holies and seek the Lord's face. This was a day of atonement. Now, atonement is interesting. This whole idea of animal sacrifice, you might think, man, it sounds so like old fashioned, like, like weird, like, like voodoo weird, you know, like you're like, man, this is weird. This is like occult stuff, you know, because when we think, I mean, if I were to say, hey, man, we're going to do an animal sacrifice today. I'm just keeping things legit. We're just going, we're going old school temple today. You know, if I brought an animal and I, you know, I didn't have any animals, so I brought a puppy, right? Because I didn't have any lambs, can't get my hands on a lamb. So, you know, little poodle will do. (laughs) Our poodle's coming to the end of his life. I love him. He would never be put on an altar. That may be your pet because I don't know your pet. So... (laughs) But if I were to cut the throat of a, of a puppy, you'd be like, what? This is a cult. You wouldn't even, I mean, if you just saw an altar with smoke billowing and a dog tied to the altar, I don't think you'd even say through the first song, right? Because it seems so foreign. I want you to understand this was not an archaic you know, vicious, violent world where they were just blood was slinging and animals were dying. The Bible gives us a very specific purpose for the atonement. The animals symbolically satisfy God's justice for sin. These lambs, these animals, they took our place or their place and it covered them, atoned for them 
Through that atonement, God dwelled with them as long as there was a covering or a satisfaction of judgment. Now, I want you to realize this, that they didn't just kill these animals and, and burn them. They actually killed these animals and they would eat them. So it's like a giant barbecue celebration, a feast unto the Lord. Some cultures, they just kill them and it's just bloody and it's violent and they're, they're offering animals to you know, to false idols and gods, they would offer these animals in the Bible and then they would eat them. So it wasn't just like, it wasn't just mutilation. It was for the purpose of, of offering the very best to the Lord because it had to be animals that were pure and undefiled and healthy and uh, young. Uh, and, and they basically had to be without spot, without blemish, uh, perfect in every way, they would offer the best to the Lord on that brazen altar, and then they would consume that as honoring unto the Lord. So this is important that you know that this covering was not just some weird bloody experience, but this was the place that man, through that sacrifice, found peace with God. Here's the fourth thing why that was important. It was the place God revealed himself and his will. It was the place where they discovered God's direction. While they were in the tabernacle, while they were in the wilderness, you see that that pillar of fire at night and that cloud of smoke in the daytime, that told them where the tabernacle was going to be. The fire of God said, this is where the tabernacle will be. The tabernacle did not decide where the fire of God was going to be. Because it was led by God, not by men. Exodus 40, 33 says that Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance of the courtyard so that Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It goes on to say that this cloud moved and they moved. And when it stopped, they stopped. And I want you to know the word glory there is called Shekinah. Everybody say Shekinah. Shekinah is a, is a dynamic word in the Old Testament. It's translated glory. But when you see glory, if it's the word Shekinah, it means magnificent, powerful, all-consuming glory and presence of God. It's not just, wow, that's glorious. Wow, that's cool. Like fireworks. That's glorious. No, it was an all-consuming, powerful, in-your-face glory. It's called the Shekinah glory. And he says, when they finished the tabernacle, the Shekinah glory of the Lord filled that place. And the Shekinah glory was the Holy Spirit in their presence who led them and guided them. David sought it. Solomon sought it. And he built a place for it. Here's the fifth thing. And it's this. Is it, it's the place. It was the place that was to be the center of all of their life. It was placed at the center of camp. It's the highest point of the capital city in Jerusalem. It was to direct and to be the center of all their life and actions. The tabernacle, the temple was to be the center of everything that their community was all about. The book of Leviticus puts it this way. It says, give instructions for the sacrifices. Basically, if you read the book of Leviticus, uh, I was told Leviticus. I was told when I was a young person, uh, you, many of you have heard me say this, that if you read Leviticus, it'll put hair on your chest. It did not work for me. It may work for you. Uh, the reason I was told that is because Leviticus is one of the most complex, weird books in the entire Bible to read. Usually, if you're reading through the Bible, that's the place where people stop. Because it's bizarre, it's bloody, it's pretty much a blood manual. It's the instructions, the entire book of Leviticus is the instructions of what the brazen altar was supposed to be like. So it's a tough one to read, but this is what it says in Leviticus 26, 11. It says, I will put my dwelling place among you and I will not abhor you. That means I won't run from you and I won't resist you and I won't hate you. He says, but I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. He said, man, I will walk among you. This is an echo of the garden. Years later, they moved into the promised land where the tent then floated around through about for about 80 years. It floated around uh, after they had a king and it floated around for like 300 years before they had a king. And then Solomon said, enough is enough. My father's commissioned me. Let's build a home for the ark and for the temple of God. So David brought the ark 
back to Jerusalem. He designed and prepared a temple, and Solomon built the temple as instructed. Now, I want you to take a look at this video. Uh, This is basically what the temple might have looked like. Um, This is an artist's reconstruction. It was basically the tabernacle on steroids. If you could imagine that little modest tent experience built into a structure that was massive and beautiful and elaborate, had more gold, had more precious jewels, had more precious stones. It was truly a wonder. Just as God dwelled in the tent, he dwelled in the temple. Just as he dwelled in the tabernacle, he dwelled in the temple. It was the inside of the actual holy place and the holy of holies. The inside was completely, from top to bottom sides, was entirely covered in gold. While it used to have a brazen altar, now the brazen altar, the new one, that small altar was now a massive structure that was over 15 feet tall. You would walk up these massive steps to have this massive square. Now, the temple itself was about this, just slightly smaller than a football field. I want you to think about the dimensions of this building. It had, instead of one menorah inside that holy place, it had 10 menorahs. Instead of having one table of showbread, it now had 10 tables of showbread. And just as God dwelled in the tent and tabernacle, he was now in the temple. It was dedicated. It took four years uh, to build, actually took uh, seven years to build, seven and a half years because they, they put more furniture, gold furniture in it in that next year. Uh, when it was dedicated, there was a massive giant parade where they brought the ark from its temporary place, from its tent to its new home. And they offered, that day, they offered 22,000 oxen and 120 sheep. And the Bible says they partied for a month and had a feast for seven days. So we're talking a massive celebration. It was the tabernacle on steroids. And as the ark was positioned into its place, God showed up in his Shekinah. Check this out in First Kings 8.10. It says, when the priest withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. That's the holy place. And the priest could not performed their service because of the Lord, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The Shekinah filled the place, just like the tabernacle. Now, this is important because a lot of you are thinking, so this is about a building. This is about a structure. Then, you know, a lot of churches, uh, particularly, I'm just going to call that a lot of charismatic churches, a lot of Pentecostal churches, they tend to live in the Old Testament to the point that they want to relive those experiences and they put an emphasis on buildings. You might find that there's a strong emphasis on structures and buildings because they want to bring back that ideal of the temple. But I want you to hear these verses because it was never about a building. It was never about a structure. This is what it says. It says in 1 Kings eight twenty seven, Solomon says, but will God really dwell on earth? This rhetorical question. He says, the heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. He says, man, he realized that this is not about a building. God doesn't need a building. God does not need a building. The building was not for God. It was in the name of God, but it was for the people so that they could meet, dwell, find, and know. A place cannot replace true worship. Second Chronicles, he says this, Solomon says, but who is able to build a temple for him since the heavens, even the highest heavens cannot contain him? Who then am I to build a temple for him except as a place to burn sacrifices for him? Second Chronicles six eighteen. but will God really dwell on earth? As with humans, the heavens, even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. It's the same thing as in First Kings. Solomon understood it was never about the tent. It was never about the tabernacle. It's never about the temple. It was never about a building. It was about God dwelling with us. With this new system, God gave us a glimpse of his ultimate plan. I want you to realize this. If the temple was so important, then what happened to it? 
Because guess what? There's no temple in Jerusalem today. There's no temple. Solomon's temple is gone. It survived for about 400 years, and then it was completely and utterly destroyed. Another one was built about 70 years later by a guy named Zerubbabel, and it was known as Zerubbabel's temple. For 400 years, it was the center of worship, but as they strayed from God, so did the presence of God. And eventually Israel and Judah were captured. The cities were destroyed. The temple was torn completely down to the ground. As a second temple was built by Zerubbabel, that time there was no ark because when they when that first temple, when Solomon's temple was destroyed the ark was destroyed or taken off and to this day we still don't know where the ark of the covenant is John does mention it as being in heaven and that's where I think it is because that presence is no longer needed anymore we're going to talk about that so the ark is gone the first temple was destroyed 70 years later they built another one by a guy named Zerubbabel and over the course of the next 300 years a king named Herod basically did a massive renovation and built up the temple again to this massive golden superstructure there has never been a temple on it like it in the planet you know the one thing that separates the temple of the lord apart from every temple in the entire known world at that time it was the only temple on the planet that did not contain an idol because they did not worship an idol of marble, of stone or wood. They worshiped the Lord, the true and living God. Now I want you to realize this because once that ark was gone and Herod rebuilt it, that was the temple that Jesus walked into. It was the second temple, Zerubbabel's temple. Some would call it the third temple because it was Herod's remodel. So they would say Solomon's temple, Zerubbabel's temple, maybe Herod's temple. And then there's either a third or fourth, depending on how you look at Z's or Herod's temple. And Jesus walked into that. He walked into this temple and his disciples walked out one day with him and they said, Jesus, isn't this place awesome? Isn't this place great? Isn't this an amazing place? And Jesus said, yeah, it's all right. (laughs) You see nothing, my friend. I'm gonna tell you something. But he says, you know what? This temple... It will be destroyed in your lifetime. You're going to see its walls come down to the ground. He says, this generation will not pass away before every one of you sees its total destruction. And then he says, there's another temple, and it's going to be rebuilt in three days. They didn't realize it. He was talking about himself. I want you to realize this, that this temple seemed to be the end. Forty years after Jesus said that, Rome attacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple in 70 A.D., and we've never had a temple since then. The, Drew, uh, the Jews were spread out all over the world. They were spread out all over the Middle East. And uh, they, the sacrificial system uh, that required the brazen altar and the lavern and the holy place with the menorah and the table of showbread and the altar of incense and the holy place with the ark was gone. All of it, gone. It's never been back ever since. People are wondering, is it ever coming back? Some people are looking for another temple. Some people are looking for the return of the temple. There are some that believe that when the temple is built, Jesus will come back. Now, there's a group in Brazil, a Pentecostal charismatic group, uh, which, by the way, that's my heritage. That's my background. Um, but this group in Brazil, they're out of their mind. They, want, they decided to rebuild. Watch this video um, while I'm talking. They decided to rebuild Solomon's temple in Brazil. So what they did is they actually took the the, uh, the size and the uh, it, it took them I think um, some you know three to five million dollars which uh, in Brazil apparently goes a lot further because it would be much more expensive here. They built a structure and uh, to the exact sizes of Solomon's temple. The only difference is is that they decided to house the court as well. So they've they basically built the front and then enclosed the rest of it. And that is now a massive auditorium that seats like, you know, 10,000 people. It is uh, amazing. If you do, if you look at, they call it Solomon's Temple. If you Google Solomon's Temple Brazil, you'll see some crazy pictures of the inside and how they make the altar look like the Holy of Holies. They make the altar look like the, the uh, you know, the Ark of Covenant. They're, it's bizarre. Anyhow, they, they feel like that if they can rebuild the Solomon's Temple, that they can reignite the Shekinah that was in Jerusalem. I think they're terribly misled because the Shekinah has already come. Let's talk about this for a minute. The Bible speaks of three temples. Some believe in the fourth. 
There's Solomon's temple. There's Herod's Zerubbabel's temple. And there is a third temple or a fourth temple, depending on how you look at it. And the Old Testament prophets basically said there's going to be another temple. So even though the temple is gone, even though Jerusalem has no temple, hey, if you can find that picture of the Dome of the Rock, basically that temple was destroyed. And guess who moved in? Uh, a Muslims years ago, the Turks moved in. And at that time, they took over Jerusalem and built a mosque on top of Mount Moriah on the Temple Mount where the tabernacle stood. So if Jerusalem was ever to have a temple again, which is their goal, they would have to destroy the most holy place in the world to Muslims. They believe that on that mountain, Muhammad ascended into heaven. And that is a rock where Abraham, they believe, sacrificed his son or was about to. And that's where they put the dome of the rock where Muhammad ascended. So if... if a tabernacle was to be built there, it'd be all out war with Muslims and Jewish people. So is that really going to happen? Some people are thinking that's going to be World War Three, that that's going to be the end of the world, that this temple, well, actually the temple has already come. Check out John 1.1. 1, 1. It says this. I want to end up with these thoughts here. It says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the word was God. I want you to think about Genesis 1 when God spoke the word and the law of God, which is the word and the ark of God, which housed the word. He says that word is now in the flesh. He says, verse 14 says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word dwelt there is the word tabernacled or tented. So God, the word himself, shows up and pitches a tent, a tabernacle in our presence among us. It says, we have seen his glory. The word there's Shekinah. We have seen the Shekinah, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He said, he cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Guys, listen, he was saying, this isn't just Jesus. This isn't just my cousin. John the Baptist was saying that. He says, but this guy who's actually my younger cousin is actually the God of all creation because though I am before him, he is before me. He is God from the past, from ages past with us. He says, out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. He says that first grace was the word. The second grace is Jesus. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father. He has made him known. John wants us to know that Jesus is the tent. Jesus is the tabernacle. And Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the ark of covenant in the flesh. Jesus is the word of the Lord, the law in the flesh. Jesus is God with them in the flesh, walking around the temple with feet. The Old Testament was a sign pointing to Jesus. I want you to do this. If you've got your notes, those things that we told you about uh, a minute ago with the, the five reasons why the temple is important, I want you to take your pencil or pen and I want you to write Jesus over each one of these because I want you to realize this is that number one, everything the temple was, Jesus is and more. I want you to write Jesus next to each one of these because it is through Jesus where we find God. The world need only look to Jesus. The only way into that relationship, into that fellowship, into that life is through Jesus. If the world wants to know who Jesus is, they nearly and only need to look to Jesus himself. You see that city, that camp, everything outside of the tabernacle represents the world. And if you want to know God, you look to Jesus. He is the only way in. As there was only one door into that tabernacle and temple, there's only one way into the very dwelling place of God. It is Jesus. He is the gate. He is the door. He is the way. 
Number two is that he is, it is through Jesus that God dwells with us again. God literally tabernacled with us. The whole point of this system, this old covenant was so that God could dwell with us, though only temporarily. While Jesus was the fulfillment of that very event, God literally showed up the word, that ark, that place, those Ten Commandments, the law of of God literally became flesh and blood and walked in our presence. While they and some still looked for a building, and while some here still look for a building, this is what Jesus says. He came to them that was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. God becomes a man. Jesus is where man meets God. Here's the third thing. I want you to write this next to that number three, the purpose of the temple. Well, it's really, it's through Jesus that man finds peace with God. I want you to realize this, that as they walked into that court, as they walked into that tabernacle, as they walked into that temple court area, the first thing that they had to encounter was blood, was the blood of the lamb. For the only way into the very presence of God is through the blood of the lamb who is Jesus Christ. John 1, 27, John the Baptist declared, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And unlike daily sacrifices, Jesus offered himself on that brazen altar called the cross once and for all. Hebrews 9, 1 through 7 talks about how the sacrificial system is over and how people had to go again and again, two times a day, once a year, and multiple times throughout the year. But this is what it says in Hebrews 9. It says in verse 8, The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration of the present time indicating the gifts and the sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. He says those, those sacrifices, they had to do it a couple of times a day and it still didn't cover their sin. But it was only a picture of what was to come. That altar is Jesus Christ. He says, but verse 26, but he appeared once and for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people were destined to die once and after that to face judgment, by the way, that's a great verse against reincarnation. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. That's one of the great, great, wonderful prophecies of the tabernacle in the flesh is that now that the tabernacle has set foot and walked the planet, he's coming back again. Hebrews ten eighteen, And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. The brazen altar is done. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body. He says, man, every element in here was Jesus. Everything in this is about Jesus. I want you to write this down. Put this Jesus next to number four. Is it is through Jesus that God reveals himself and his will. There was a conversation with Jesus at a well with a woman. Uh, she was known as the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. And she was a woman who was uh, living in adultery. She had uh, multiple uh, relationships. And Jesus was reading her mail and loving on her. He didn't judge her for it. He was loving on her. He was helping her to know the truth for her life and that she was living out of God's will for her life. But he was loving on her. And she began to ask him some questions. She says, ah, you must be a prophet. Well, tell me, where should we worship? The Jewish people say over there. She points to the temple mound where the temple was. And then she he says, but the Samaritans, we believe it's over there. She points to a mountain where Jacob had set up an altar where the Samaritans worshiped. And so she said, which is the place where God meets with us? Verse 23 of chapter four, it says, yet a time is coming, Jesus says, and now is the time, now has come when the true worshipers will worship Father and Spirit and in truth. For they, they are the kind of worshipers God seeks. He says, it's not about Jacob's mountain. It's not about the tabernacle. 
He says, there's a new way of worship that's happening right before you. He says, God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman says, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. He says, that person who you're looking for, for direction in your life, for the answers to your life, to to how to worship and how to know God, everything you want to know about your life has arrived. That's me. Jesus referred to himself as the temple. He says, I am the temple. He says, and this temple will be destroyed, but in three days, I will rebuild this temple. He was talking about his resurrection. They thought he was crazy. At Jesus' death, the temple veil was torn from top to bottom. God himself did it. The way had been made. Jesus paid the price. The old system has now been replaced with a new system, a new covenant, a new way. No longer do we need to go to a place. We just need to go to a person. No longer do we need to pack up and travel. All we need to do is drop to our knees right where we are. The old system says, go to where God is. The new system says, God has come to you. I want you to realize that this is a major breakthrough. 40 years later in 70 AD, this whole temple was destroyed. And all that was left was the body of Christ proclaiming the truth of the temple. You see that courtyard, that place where they would go to that brazen altar, that was the cross. And then they would go to that laver in those wash areas. That is the picture of salvation and the cleansing power of God to wash us clean of our sins and a picture of baptism. And then as they enter into that holy place, once you go to the cross and you experience the cleansing of your sin, that holy place is the Christian life. And when you walk into that holy place, that holy life with Christ, you find yourself at the menorah, shining bright the light of God to the world. And you find yourself at the table of showbread where you feast on the word of God, which is the bread of life, Jesus. And then you find yourself at the altar of incense, offering up worship unto the Lord. And then one day, someday, you'll pass into the most holy place, which is the place of the very presence of God, which represents heaven. See, this whole journey of the court of the holy place is actually a journey of Jesus. For Jesus is the way in. He is the cross. He is the way of cleansing. Jesus is the way of salvation. He is the life. He is the truth. In that place where the light shined the truth of God and their life reflected the life of God and they ate the truth of God, they would worship and reflect that life. And then... One day, you will experience eternity in heaven, immortality in the very presence at the altar at the throne of God. See, the ark is called the throne of God. It is a picture of our immortality. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and the world is looking for the way looking for the truth, looking for the answers to life. But just as there's one way to the temple, there's only one way to this relationship. What Solomon built, the entire thing was a glimpse of Jesus. Look at Jesus, 14.6. Jesus said, I am the way, the altar, and the cleansing water. I am the truth, the bread, the candle, the incense. And I am the life, I am the ark. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know the Father as well. From now on, you do know him, for you've seen him. Here's the last thing I want to go home with. This is this right here, right? Jesus next to number five, and that is like the temple, Jesus is to be the center of our life. A walk with God is not a book. A walk with God is not a class. A walk with God is not the church. A walk with God is not a ritual or tradition. It's a way of life, of walking in the Shekinah glory of Jesus Christ, dwelling with him as the center of your life. Jesus is the fulfilled temple. Now listen, God first dwelled in a tent. Then he dwelled in a tabernacle. Then he dwelt in a temple. Then he came and walked the planet as he dwelt in Jesus. Now that last temple is you.
the new temple is you. This was God's plan all along to dwell with and in people within you. Don't look for a building. You are now the tabernacle with feet. That's what it says in Ezekiel. He talks about the temple being built with living stones. Peter again says it in 2.5 of 1 Peter. He says, you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house. Ephesians 3.17 says, Christ dwells or tabernacles in the hearts through faith. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 6.19, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have received from God, you are not your own. Listen, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are now the temple filled with the Shekinah glory of God. I'm not looking for an earthly temple to be built. But the Bible says that temple is you. You are the temple of God. Now walk the earth. This week, our life teams are going to talk about what it means to be the temple. They're going to talk a little about what it means to live and reflect yourself as the temple of the Holy Spirit. Many are looking for a building, but Jesus chose you to be his building. Right here in the AMC, at your work, on your street, in your family, at your school, you are the temple walking among people. I want you to realize this. This city, known as Zion, is the church. That temple built on that mount are us as people. There's a world crying out for hope, for answers, for life, for truth. And there's one place they can find it. Through Jesus Christ, the shining bright temple, the city on a hill is you. Will you be that temple? If you are a believer, embrace that. If you're not a believer, I want you to know that the only way into the very throne of God is through the one way, that one door. But just like when you walk into that temple, the first thing you experience is death. It's not only death of a lamb, but it's also your death. You must die to yourself. You must lay down your life, your goals, your mission at the altar of God. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much, Lord, that the temple was was a picture of what was to come for us, a greater glory. God, I thank you, Lord, that that temple and its magnificent gold and, and height and stature and jewels, God, doesn't even compare to the beauty of a believer. How beautiful are the feet of them that bring good news. How beautiful are your children. God, your word compares us to jewels and precious stones because we are your temple. We are your beauty. We are your declaration of hope to the world. Solomon saw it, but God, we live it. I want to ask you something today. God desires from the start to dwell in you. Does God dwell in you? Ask yourself. Is God dwelling in me? Have you, have you crossed through the, through the cross? Have you found yourself in the cleansing place of Jesus? Have you walked through the doors of the holy place and found the light of life? Is God dwelling in your life? He can today. He will today. If you'll find yourself at the altar of the cross. God, I pray in Jesus' name, Lord, as, as, as we are sitting here thinking about our position with you. God, I pray that we would, in, in the midst of all this information today, that we would focus in on the reality that you desire to live inside of us and walk in us and the glory of God to reflect out of us. If there's anyone here and you're saying, you know what, I need to walk to the cross. I'm in a, in a place where I feel lost and I know that Jesus is my hope and I need to find him today. If that's you, just take a moment right where you're sitting and say, Jesus, here's my life. Here's my heart. I look to the cross.
forgive me of my sins. I lay my life on the altar. I die to myself. I look to the lamb that was slain for my sins. And I wash myself in the labyrinth of the cleansing water of Jesus. And I walk into the doors of salvation, Father, where I will live the light of life. God, I will eat the bread of truth and I will worship you with all of my life until the end of my days where I walk through the doors of eternity and spend my life at the feet of the throne of God. God, here I am. The center of my life, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Solomon's reign was the golden age in many parts due to the temple. But as we're going to find last week's our last week on the king's Solomon's life actually ends quite badly. And uh, next week, the fall of a great man. A sad fall. But at the end, he recovers and finds God again, but it's not without a lot of pain. Will you take that journey with us one more day next Sunday? Thank you for listening to the Living Way Church podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.